Let me draw your attention to chapter 1, verse 38. I want to draw your attention to Jesus' own question. He poses a question, what do you want? What do you want? What are you seeking is another way you can understand that. Um, These are actually Jesus' first recorded words in John's Gospel. Now, if you were with us last week, John opened, he told us Jesus is God himself, he is God become flesh, so God has come amongst us and the first thing that he says, well, to John the Baptist's disciples, they get redirected, they start following Jesus, they start seeking him and Jesus turns to these would-be followers and he questions them, his first words to his first followers, what do you want, what are you seeking, what do you expect from me? At one level, it's just a question to those two guys on that particular day. But, of course, we know that John records everything not for their benefit, they were there. Um, It's recorded for our benefit, for you and me. And and actually, at the end of John's Gospel, at the end of his account, um, he explains his editing principle. He explains why he lets some bits in and left some bit of Jesus' life out. And he says in John 20, verse 25, "...these are written that you may believe." that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. So that editing principle, why John included some things and not, is that I want you to see the identity of Jesus. Here is God's King. I want you to see Jesus' clear offer. You can have life to the full if you'll trust him. And that shapes why he recorded those first words. His first words are a bit blessing us, getting us thinking about where we should and should not look for the answers to life's big questions. To get us to think about why is it that we've come to him? Right at the outset, we're forced to reflect, what have I come to Jesus for? What do I want? What do you expect? A lot of would-be followers come to Jesus with an agenda. I led a Bible study for young adults in the past that burst at the seams. Loads of until we hit the book of Romans. And this group... How's this for group management? This group halved uh, as God spoke truth about the depth of our sin, our inability to contribute anything to salvation, our complete reliance, dependence and need for his love for us in Christ. So the group had started, this big group, with everyone you know, wanting to come to Jesus, encounter Jesus. Um, some were already believers, they kind of stayed on. Um, others were interested explorers. And these not yet believers, lovely people, And they came expecting some wisdom and moral guidance from Jesus. To put it bluntly, um, they wanted Jesus to tell them how well they were doing. Uh, They sought something that Jesus wasn't and wouldn't give because he only gives what's best for us. Uh, So they left with their agenda intact but not with Jesus. 1 verse 38, Jesus asked, what do you want? And notice their answer. They reply with a question. Where are you staying? Or another way of putting it, where are you abiding or where are you remaining? It becomes an important word much later in John's Gospel. Uh, That is, we simply want to be with you, Jesus. They want him. Uh, It is a model response for us that being with Jesus is enough. And as we step into this chapter, we're going to poke around, jump back and forth in it. What the rest of this chapter is showing is why that's enough. You know, whatever you've come to him for today... His presence is enough. You can drop your agenda and simply be with him. So God wants you to know this. Jesus is trustworthy power. 
His trustworthy power. Um, we're working this series in the lead up to Easter that we might know Jesus, be ready to look at the cross and his resurrection well. And meeting Jesus, who do we meet? We meet God in the flesh. And today, particularly, we meet Christ and we see his trustworthy power. That whatever it is that you came for, you know, want, um, staying with Jesus is all you need. He is trustworthy power. So we're going to look at it in two parts. Um, first, Jesus' power. His power to cleanse, power to guide, power to rule. He is the power you need. We'll get to each in turn. Um, in the following chapters, in what you know, we'll get to read on in coming weeks, we're going to see Jesus in power um, uh, acting mightily. He's going to give signs. Uh, so turning water to wine and making the blind see, he's going to raise the dead. And John, the writer, prepares us for all that action um, by describing Jesus for us. So you might have noticed, as Annabelle read, that he rattled through this list of titles, loads and loads of names for Jesus. I'm going to hit you with them. We're going to come back to them. Don't remember them instantly at all. Um, Verse 29, verse 36, the Lamb of God. Verse 33, the Spirit baptizer. Verse 34, the Chosen One. Verse 49, the Son of God. Verse 38 and 49, a rabbi. Verse 41, the Messiah, also known as the Christ. Verse 49, King of Israel. So many titles, so little action. So many titles and you're going, which one are you, Jesus? And the answer is yes. He's all of them. John is introducing us and what we need to see from the start is the, the length, the breadth, the width, the dimensions of Jesus' power. That Jesus is not powerful in one just little area. He's not just one of those titles, he's all of them. He's, he's power in every area we need. So we'll look at some more closely. Jesus' power to cleanse. 1 verse 29. The baptizer sees Jesus and he calls out, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, verse 35. Look, the Lamb of God. Um, Those who have been around church for a while, you might know that expression, Lamb of God. If it is not familiar to you, that's great. You're actually walking in the shoes of those first hearers. Um, It's something, it seems, John coined this unique take on Jesus' power to cleanse, trying to tie together a whole lot of ideas that were around, um, different models of hope. So some of those are about suffering. From the sacrificial system that we read of in Leviticus, Uh, Liam just got a little bit part, I spared him reading a whole lot more, but you could see there's there's sheep, there's goats, there's bull, there's lots of things had to die, lots of suffering, um, through to the the ram who took Isaac's death in Genesis 22 and the Passover lamb dying for all of Israel's firstborn sons to Isaiah 53's uh, promised suffering servant who... um, you know, like, led like a lamb to the slaughter would bear the debt of our sins. All these images of suffering. But there are other images that he's drawing on about victory. Um, in Jewish writings, this apocalyptic lamb, and it's picked up in um, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, John wrote that as well. Um, you know, this image of a victorious lamb that would destroy enemies of sin and, and suffering, our enemies, Satan, death. And the baptizer pulls these together, this suffering, this victory, and he says, look, here is Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's both those. He is the Lamb. You know, he is God's ultimate solution to sin after those thousands of imperfect sacrifices, going back time and time again, spilling blood. He is the Lamb of God. You know, it's God's power to cleanse. It's not about you. It's not how good your sacrificial work is. It's about him. And he takes the sin of the world. Not just one people, not just Israel. He's the solution for everyone, no exceptions. You have to come to him. So what do you want, Jesus asks. 
and he shows he's the power to cleanse the most stained life, the guiltiest conscience, including yours. Yeah, he's the one, verse 33, who baptises with the Spirit. Um, John's baptism, uh, you know, cleansed symbolically, washing on the outside uh, with water. Jesus' baptism cleanses our reality on the inside, you know, where, where the water can't reach, making us clean from the inside, but God himself dwelling by his Spirit to change, and he can therefore change you. His power to cleanse, uh, and with it, his power to guide. Uh, twice he's called Rabbi. Uh, verse 38 and again verse 49. A rabbi is um, a teacher, as we're told there, but not like teachers in our school system. A rabbi means literally my great one, um, which, you know, I don't know, many of you tempted to call your teachers that. Uh, no, it is a term to honour a master in everything. So our modern teachers, you know, they're, they're restricted, they're isolated, they've got a subject. It's, you know, the English department, maths department. Rabbis taught life without bounds. They taught everything and that's why um, these first disciples, as they call him rabbi, they are placing themselves under, their, their whole lives under his guidance. And so notice in verse 37, he doesn't say, oh, and they learnt from Jesus, they took notes. No, verse 37, they followed him. Verse 39, they remain in his presence until uh, four in the afternoon, the tenth hour. They spent all day with him. It's this old adage that Christianity is caught, not taught. We don't learn godliness in daily life simply by reading books in splendid isolation. We learn it here in community. Uh, We learn it by watching the lives of Christians who started following Jesus before we did. And and they had learnt it from people who started before them, who learnt it from people who started before them, all the way back to this afternoon uh, where those couple of disciples spent time with Jesus. So what do you want, Jesus asked. He has power to... Guide. He doesn't just have insights into this kind of the special interest topic of religion and spirituality. You don't just come to him for that and he deals with that department. No, he is the leadership you need in every part of life. He's got power to guide um, and with that, he's, Jesus is power to rule. He is the chosen one, the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the king of Israel. Um, each of those little titles highlighting his right, right to rule every person across every age into eternity. Uh, so Messiah is Hebrew, uh, Christ is Greek. They are not his surname, but it's, it's reasonable if you come tonight thinking that because it sounds like that, Jesus Christ. It's not his surname, it's actually a title. Um, literally, oily one um, or uh, anointed one. You know, someone who's had oil specially put upon them, set aside for a role, a task. And it's broader than we often give credit, uh, this oiliness. Um, in the Old Testament, kings were anointed. Uh, like David in 1 Samuel 16. Priests were anointed, like Aaron in Exodus 29. Prophets anointed, like Elisha in 1 Kings 19. So Jesus, um, Messiah, the Christ, the oily one, recognises authority across those areas. So as king, he calls, those, he calls the shots in God's kingdom um, you know, and therefore over every moment of your life. As priest, he is the the bridge between divine and human. He is the only safe way that you can come to God and not be destroyed. And as prophet, he is perfect truth. You know, the the only confidence you can have to know the the, the reality, the complete truth about not only yourself and life, but God himself. Um, That Jesus, his power is not something that you can take or leave. Uh, Your eternal safety depends on accepting his authority, his power to rule. 
In short, Jesus is power we need, you need. And so Jesus asked the question, what do you want? What are you coming to me for? Well, his words are showing um, what you desperately need is me. You know, he is who you need. If only you will see him clearly. Because if you can see him clearly, you'll, you'll actually see as well your need for him. You'll see that actually all I want is to be with him. But so few, sadly, see their need for him. They're blind. Um, Australian journalist uh, Ginger Gorman um, was attacked by online trolls. Um, trolls in that sense, not the, the kind of creatures under the bridge. You know, we're, we're thinking online, the anonymity of the internet, you can post whatever you want there. Um, as a good journo, uh, Gorman decided to reach out to these trolls, their inflammatory, insulting comments, see what makes them tick to try and understand people who do this. Uh, she wrote a book, Troll Hunting. Uh, in her research, uh, she engaged with some of those extreme people. Some with you know, mental illnesses like narcissism. People who understand what will hurt you but have no capacity to feel for you. And after um, interviewing one of those men, she, she uh, wrote and shared that she's felt nauseous spending an hour with somebody like that, so relentlessly dangerous. Um, and he contacted her about this, not, not able to understand her emotions, blind to the damage she does. And Gorman said in an interview, um, this is the great line, he was trying to explain sight to someone without eyes. I'm trying to explain sight to someone without eyes. As he couldn't even see what he was missing. He couldn't even grasp what he was missing out on. I'm trying to explain sight to someone without eyes. And those who cling to their agenda as they come to Jesus are just like that. You know, they can't even see what they're missing. They so desperately need God to actually open their eyes. And we're going to see in the chapters ahead that is exactly what Jesus does. He opens their eyes that they might see him. Uh, For too many meet Jesus in the flesh unmoved, unchanged, because they are blind to the power they need. Um, You need his cleansing. You can't undo the hurt you've done. You can't redo the good you've missed out on. You don't have a perfectly clear conscience. You need him to take your sin at the cross as far from you as east is the west. And you need his guidance. You cannot live wisely and make sense of this world without him guiding you. And you need his rule. Left to your own devices, running life your own way, you will never be what you created for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Talk to Justin later about his little catch cry of his testimony. Great little way of explaining why you shouldn't be running your own life. You need Jesus. Now Jesus says, you know, what do you want? And better than your agenda, he's saying... I'm what you need. He is power. How do you give yourself over to that? How can you trust it? Well, secondly, Jesus is trustworthy. There is good reason to rely on his power. John invites you, be sceptical but not cynical. Okay, so there's a biblical principle. You only make um, decisions, important decisions, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know, Deuteronomy 17 and 19, you don't legally convict when it's just one word against the other. You, you need witnesses. You know, you've got to make big decisions with good evidence. And John is writing, remember, so that you will believe, that you will give yourself totally to Jesus, life's biggest decision. And so from the very first chapter, he's building a case um, with testimony from heaven and earth and more. Um, First witness, John the Baptist, testimony from heaven. 
You know, we meet John out there doing this ritual washing in the wilderness, this washing that was preparation that you might go and, and have your um, sacrifice done, your sins dealt with. And he drew people away from Jerusalem going, no, no, that is not going to work, rebuking that temple system of endless sacrifice and the leadership there that had become empty. And he took people to the wilderness so they might be ready to receive and he testified as God's representative. Heaven spoke through. Now, everyone knew John was special from God. 1 verse 19, you know, they send envoy. Are you the Christ? No, it's not me. Verse 27, someone greater is coming, someone who's, um, you know, if you update it, shoes I'm not worthy to polish. Verse 30 and 31, uh, it's Jesus. John is a witness representing God himself, testifying you can trust Jesus. Because you notice the way he quotes uh, in verse, uh, around verse 32 and 3, um, he cites there God's own testimony, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism. Other Gospels record that voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love. That is God's Spirit testifies, a witness. God is speaking through John, you can trust him. And then you've got the evidence, that's heaven speaking, you've got earth speaking, ordinary people. Verse 40, Jesus spends time with, uh, sorry, Andrew spends time with Jesus and he gets convinced. And so what's he do? He tells his brother, verse 41, we found the Christ. And and that pattern gets repeated, verse 45, Philip gets convinced and he invites Nathaniel to come and discover Jesus. Verse 49, Nathaniel's certain, that is, ordinary people who meet Jesus testify, you can trust him. You know, that biblical principle, you don't make big decisions without good evidence. You know, at least two witnesses. You know, and you and I, we do this all the time, don't we? We do it instinctively, even on small things. I, I, don't, I don't go to a cafe or a restaurant without checking out the online reviews. You know, it's, uh, in the scheme of eternity, that's, you know, not a big issue. And yet, I don't want to waste my, my money and, and have a disappointing meal. And, you know, testimony matters. How much more in giving your life and your eternity. How much more confidence can we have when it's not just kind of random people giving reviews online and it's heaven and earth coming together. You can trust his power because even more, we've got the greatest testimony, Jesus speaking himself into our lives, revealing us, testifying about both us and him. That's the lesson of Nathaniel. Verse 45, uh, Philip tells Nathaniel, centuries of God's promises have been met in this one man. You know, God's kept it all and I can go and introduce you to him. And um, at the mention of Nazareth, uh, Nathaniel cynically dismisses Jesus. Now, Bethsaida, uh, a backwater, but a nice one. It's by the sea, a fishing village. Um, Bethsaida looked down on Nazareth as if anything good can come from there. Um, At first, Nathaniel will not do the hard work of discovering Jesus' true origin, Bethlehem, line of David, the king. It's a little side warning. You stay a cynic, you will miss out on Jesus' good power for no reason. But if you're willing to break through the cynicism, if you're really willing willing to to, to inquire, you will discover Jesus is better than you expected. It's his testimony about both himself and us. That's the rest of Nathaniel's story. Um, He meets Jesus and Jesus' power. And Jesus sees right in Nathaniel's life. He's seen him. This experience perhaps some of you have had, I've had, um, you know, just reading the Bible where our deepest secrets seem exposed with a verse or two from God. He has seen me, that word that I needed at the right time. He's seen me with a line, verse 48, Nathaniel is known by Jesus in ways he'd never expected. So Jesus calls him a true Israelite without deceit. Uh, Jacob, 
patriarch of the Jewish nation, his name meant deceiver, Jacob the deceiver, a summer of his life. He's always tricking people. Um, but a night, after a night of wrestling with God, the Lord renames him Israel, which means he struggles or wrestles with God. And Jesus, supernaturally, he sees into Nathanael, he sees his straight talking, no deceit, no Jacob in you, but um, also one with a serious desire to engage God, wrestle with God, a real Israelite, little pun, but he sees him. And Nathanael is won over, verse 49. And Jesus slows him down, he's almost too quick to believe, there's greater ahead, verse 51. Jesus alludes to this dream Jacob had of a ladder or a stairway to heaven, um, Angels, this symbol of God's royal presence and and going up and down, ascending, descending, this ladder, this, um, our sin had created a wall, has created a wall between heaven and earth. We can't be with God, but Jacob dreams of a way over, a way through it. The angels ascending and descending and Jesus, by his incarnation, ultimately, his death on the cross, um, you know, the ladder is created or or better still, he punches a hole through that wall. The, The access is open. And when Jesus says in verse 50, you shall see even greater things, it's actually the plural, it's, it's you's, it's your, it's an offer to more than Nathaniel. He's promising to bring all who are willing right into the presence of God. See, as God became flesh in the Lord Jesus, he stays, he remains both humanity and divinity. Here is the stairway to heaven. You come to God, you stay with him, you're in God's presence. See, if you meet Jesus, if you listen to the testimony of heaven and earth, he will expose you, testifying about both himself and you. He really knows you. But if you meet Jesus, you will be brought in the very presence of God. He is transforming power. You can and must trust. He is all you need. So what do you want, Jesus asks, knowing that he will exceed your expectations? Three ways to respond to meeting God in the flesh. Inquire, follow, invite. Okay, first inquire. This passage is repeatedly asking you, God is inviting you, check Jesus out properly, get to know him deeply. So the, the, the Baptist uh, twice says, look, it's that word behold, it's this word for an intent look. Um, and twice people are invited to come and see. You know, you've got to move, you've got to act to see. That is, this, this imagery here of examining someone or something closely, fix your attention, not a kind of sideward glance out of the corner of your eye. That's why the disciples in verse 39 spend all this time with Jesus. You've got to inquire. It is right to investigate him. Now, I'm confident because you're here tonight, um, you're probably not the person who's dismissing Jesus cynically. Great. You're here to encounter him. But you'll only experience his transforming power um, by beholding, by looking, by coming and seeing, by investing time and energy and effort into discovering Jesus' heart, what makes him tick. A man admitted um, he never got much out of Bible reading. He was regular at Bible reading, never got much out of it um, until he stopped reading the Bible with his TV on in the background. You know, there's that, you know, God, God's saying, no, no, come and genuinely check me out. You know, focus on me, eyes open, personal Bible reading, do it in community with others, join that growth group, be, be willing to be exposed. Because that's the more, more important part. Like these first believers, not only is it about you inquiring about him, you've got to let him expose you. Um, another man, he came to church that he might read the Bible with others and he, he loved filling his mind with information, but he would never let the Bible critique him, his actions, his attitudes. He'd never sit under the word. Ultimately, therefore, it didn't satisfy because he was looking intently. No, he wasn't looking intently. He was just kind of watching from a distance. You've got to inquire. Secondly, follow. Uh, Jesus redirects the course of your life. Everything changes when you come to him. You drop your agenda. 
that the, the baptizers, uh, original disciples, they changed their teacher, their guide, their allegiance. You know, uh, John the Baptist in verse 37 said, follow him, they do. Uh, verse 42, Simon is renamed Peter. Uh, naming is an act of power and authority. So this renaming is not what Jesus sees in Peter and kind of go, oh, you're a rock and reliable. No, no, no. It's that Jesus has the right to redefine him and say, Simon, this is who you are now. I tell you who you are. Following Jesus changes you. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a university academic um, teaching queer theory. Uh, she was in a committed lesbian relationship and sceptical of Christianity. Uh, if ever an unlikely convert, it would seem her. Uh, she had read and reread the Bible in order to refute it and she fought against it. But after her fourth reading of the whole Bible, uh, something happened. She said, the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. She said, the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. The, the, the I at the centre of my life kind of got pushed out because God got in there. Her conversion um, you know, created complications, comprehensive chaos. She put it, this was my conversion in a nutshell. I lost everything but the dog. Jesus turned her life upside down. She doesn't regret it. But following Jesus changes you. New allegiance, new identity. If your life looks the same as your lovely but not yet believing friends and family, now if there is no difference in your desires and the course of your life, if it costs you nothing to follow Jesus, to be Christian, who exactly are you following? Thirdly, invite. Jesus is way too good to keep yourself. Uh, the baptizer's whole aim is just don't look at me, look at him. Verse 41. Notice verse 41. The first thing Andrew does was tell, find his brother and tell him. First thing. Verse 43. Jesus finds Philip who goes on to find Nathaniel and tells him about Jesus. He is way too good to keep to yourself. It's not about forcing doctrine down from you know, other people's throat from a position of authority. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Here is the one who satisfies. Um, Rosaria Butterfield's radical conversion wasn't just because she read and reread the Bible. It was from an invitation, an open friendship. She writes this, What did God use to draw a radical, committed unbeliever to himself? Uh, did God take her to an evangelistic rally? Or since she had a doctorate in literature, did he use something in print? No, God used an invitation to dinner in a modest home from a humble couple who lived out the gospel daily, simply, authentically. Her neighbours invited her round, opened their home, opened their lives, started inviting and showing Jesus. We want to see more disciples of Jesus shining in the city because he is far too good to keep in these walls. Now Jesus asks, what do you want? What are you seeking? Well, he is who you need. If only you will stay with him, discover where he abides and cling with him. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him and all his power, his power to, to cleanse and guide and rule, the power we need in our lives. Father, thanks that we can entrust ourselves to him safely. Heaven and earth speak of his goodness and we pray that we would see him clearly as he is and delight to be with him wherever he goes, wherever he would lead. In Jesus' name, amen.